0: God, we approach you this morning, and Lord, we beg of your help today. We pray that your spirit would be active in illuminating minds and hearts. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts up to the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, as we dive into various passages this morning, look at different positions on the end times, Lord, we pray that you would truly be our teacher, Lord, give us spiritual wisdom and understanding, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the longest uh, running game show on TV right now is The Price is Right. Uh, they are, yeah, there we go. Amen. Started off. Uh, they are celebrating uh, their 50th season uh, this year. And if you've never seen the show, it is a crazy uh, show. Uh, the, the show is centered on these contestants who are competing, and they're trying to identify the correct price for various merchandise items. And they win prizes, they win cash, uh, and it is a game of of high highs and low uh, lows. Uh, They're trying to identify items like a 30-ounce jar of mayonnaise, for example. And there's a lot on the line. Uh, But one of the the favorite uh, moments that I have watching that show is when contestants are selected, they are uh, selected like right from the audience and their name is given and that famous come on down is announced, right? And they let out a squeal of excitement. They're jumping up and down and they run up on stage. And, and in the beginning, there is a lot of excitement and optimism and hope uh, for them as they begin their journey. Uh, and yet, as the show kind of goes on, you notice the, the contestant going through somewhat of a roller coaster of a ride of an experience. It begins with great excitement, and then there are times of confusion, feeling overwhelmed, and even certain times of frustration. Uh, and, and as you see the show kind of unfold, the contestants are given these different items, and they're supposed to name the right price. Well, the people in the audience are very active. Each member uh, in the audience, they're yelling at them various answers. Uh, trying to help them make the right call. And you would think that would be helpful, but in the abundance of answers, it's just annoying noise, right? And, and, And yet that doesn't mean that there's no correct answer, of course. It just means with so many different answers, it makes it hard to discern the right answer. And the face of the contestant goes from being very excited to feeling confused, overwhelmed, and eventually very frustrated. And when I think about uh, that experience. I, I think about our journey that we began last week, spending seven weeks here on eschatology, studying the end times. And I think that we will have the tendency to have a similar kind of experience, where in the beginning, especially last week, uh, we, we begin this journey with great excitement, optimism, hope. We, we think about these powerful truths that Jesus Christ will be returning. That Jesus is the victorious king. That Satan and and all evil will be destroyed once and for all. And even the the rush, the exciting rush of exploring maybe a a doctrine or truths in the scriptures that maybe you haven't explored before. Or maybe it's been a few decades since you've looked at. right. It it begins with, with, with this level of excitement where you can almost hear the words from the pulpit saying, come on down and explore eschatology. But that excitement can quickly fade, right? especially as we explore like, more of these positions today and we get into the weeds and, and the deep end, theologically, about how to correctly understand eschatology, that you will be tempted to feel like a contestant on The Price is Right, where all of these various positions are shouting at you different answers about how to view the end times. That you'll be tempted to go from feeling excited about Jesus' return to feeling confused, to feeling overwhelmed, and perhaps even frustrated. Now, you might feel that way, but that does not mean that the answer is unimportant or irrelevant, Today and next week, we're going to get into the deep end a little bit, and we're going to look at the weeds of of what I think are four of the most popular positions on eschatology. And you will likely feel like that contested on The Price is Right. And yet I want to encourage you and even challenge you this morning by saying that is okay if you feel overwhelmed as we look at eschatology. In fact, you're not going to be alone, trust me on that one. What's not okay is if you do feel that level of confusion or overwhelming feeling and you begin to tap out, that's not okay. If you begin to think, this is too hard, this is too confusing, and you refuse to think critically and biblically about an important topic, I'm going to challenge you with that. Like I said last week, there are a fourth of the Bible contains passages referring to eschatology. It is a good thing to wrestle with the scriptures and to make sure that we are, on one hand, keeping the plain things the main things, but not afraid to dive into hard topics. We need the Spirit of God to give us discernment, wisdom, and maybe most importantly, humility. Humility that enables us to embrace the tension where on one hand, you can be confident about taking a particular position on the end times that is biblically informed, while on the other hand, being filled with such humility that you hold that position open-handedly knowing that you could be wrong and that that's okay because this is not a primary doctrinal issue. There's a tension there that the Spirit of God can enable us to have both confidence and humility. That's something I'm praying for as we explore these four possible views, okay? So where do we begin as we think about eschatology? I think the way to begin is by looking at the topic of the millennium. Now, on the front end here, I'm going to give you these four views that um, take a different position on the millennium that really serve as the four major positions on eschatology. Those four views are ah-millennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and within that, there are two, within this pre-mill position where it's historic premillennialism and dispensational pre-millennialism. Okay, so ah-mill, post-mill, historic pre-mill, and dispensational. Pre-mill. Now, what's interesting in, is that it's important to understand that there is one eschatological event that basically divides each of those four views, and it's called the millennium. Okay? Now, I've heard that the millennium described before uh, as the 1,000-year reign of Christ of peace that Christians love to argue about. And what makes this so difficult is that there is basically these positions are largely held based on one passage in Scripture, in one chapter, in one book of the Bible that just so happens to be the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret. All right, it's in Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read these verses, and, uh, and we'll kind of unpack what they refer to. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, "'holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit "'and a great chain. "'And he seized the dragon, the, that ancient servant "'who is the devil and Satan, "'and bound him for a thousand years "'and threw him into the pit "'and shut it and sealed it over him "'so that he might not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were ended. "'After that, he must be released for a little while.'" Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Pretty clear, isn't it? Maybe on the front end, it might be clear, but there are several questions that arise, such as, are those a 1,000 years that Christ is reigning, are those literal 1,000 years, or is it figurative? Is it metaphoric, those a 1,000 years? When is Christ's second return? Is it before the millennium, or is it after the millennium? Could those 1,000 years be happening right now, figuratively? Currently, could we be living in the millennium? And what is supposed to happen during the millennium? What, what kinds of things are, are, are the people of the earth supposed to experience? There are lots of questions that surface when you start thinking about the millennium. And much of the debate comes from understanding what this 1,000-year period means in relationship to Jesus' return, okay? And there are four views that take somewhat of a different position, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain briefly the odd mill position and the post-mill position today, and then I'll unpack those more next week. And we'll really focus on the historic and dispensational pre-mill this morning. Okay? So let's start briefly here, looking at what all millennialism uh, actually refers to. And I have timelines for these. Uh, for you to be able to kind of visualize the major events, some are more specific than others. Again, I'll get to ah and post-mill more next week. But just for you to visualize kind of what these views represent. If you're more visual, this might help you. But the ah position holds that there is no millennium in the future. Ah before a word means no. So this position is kind of helpful. The name of this position is helpful to kind of understand what this is referring to. That there is no physical, literal, future, thousand year reign of Christ, but the millennium is happening right now in and through the church. And this, of course, began when Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, those that hold to this position, again, I'll unpack this more next week, but hold this position because Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 21 that the kingdom is already here. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus is already reigning with his church in the heavenly places. That Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, I have all power and all authority right now. And of course, Jesus doesn't need a political affirmation from the world to be reigning as king. Jesus uh, doesn't need consent from the people of the earth to be reigning as king. He already is. Okay, It's a short summary of all. If you hold that position, I will do justice more next week, all right? Now, the second position is post-millennialism, okay? Now, this position, as you see it in the name, the prefix post gives it away, believes that Jesus' return to the earth will occur after or post a millennium. Now, this millennium for them, for most of them in this position, is a symbolic or spiritual millennium. And this is occurring when the overwhelming majority of the world embrace the gospel. They, they call that period the golden age. And this is kind of the golden age for them because the world has greatly become Christianized. Right? During this time, there is very little suffering or persecution or trial, and there's, there's basically universal peace and joy and righteousness, and Jesus will then uh, return. Okay, So these are kind of two brief descriptions of these views, and the way that you can kind of distinguish the two here, because they're somewhat similar, there's a lot of overlap, the thing that distinguishes them is not the timing of Jesus' return, but the nature of the millennium. For the odd mill position, um, they basically hold that there can be persecution alongside advancement of the gospel. For a post mill position, they believe that, again, the world is becoming more and more Christianized. And so the church gains greater influence and prosperity throughout the world as persecution basically is non-existent. So they have an optimistic view of the future. Okay, Now, there are strengths and and weaknesses to these views we'll look at uh, next week, but I want to spend the majority of our time this morning on historic pre-mill and dispensational pre-mill. Now, there is overlap between these two, And so I'm actually going to spend more time unpacking dispensational uh, pre-mill than historic. But we're going to start with historic pre-mill here just for uh, a moment. Historic pre-mill believes that Jesus' return will occur before or pre the millennium, largely because they hold to a straightforward uh, and literal interpretation of almost every eschatological passage Okay, this means that they interpret that the chronological order that is stated in Revelation nineteen and twenty, especially First Thessalonians four and five. Okay, and what they hold is, you can see in kind of this timeline, is that the current church age will continue, and right before the tribulation period, which most believe is a literal seven-year period with uh, enormous amount of suffering, persecution, horrific events that God's people, the church, Christians, will experience, okay? And before that time, there are certain signs that occur. There's a great apostasy where many people uh, leave the faith. And after this seven-year period, Christ returns, and he establishes his millennial kingdom, okay? So at the second coming of Jesus, there will be this resurrection of believers, this public rapture. And the resurrected believers will reign with Christ, and Christ will physically be present on the earth in his resurrected body and will reign as king over the earth for this 1,000 years. Now, during that period, Satan is bound. He's cast in the bottomless pit so that he will not have influence uh, on the earth during the millennium. But after that period, Satan is briefly uh, loosed, and during that time, he leads this great rebellion against Christ— Jesus destroys this rebellion, throws Satan in the lake of fire, judges the world, and then ushers in the eternal states. Okay? And I'm going to unpack more of those details in the next position. But this historic premi, it's called historic, because historically, this has been the dominant view of God's people. This was actually the first view, way back in the early church. And it's been the most popular view um, all the way up to as the last uh, few hundred years. Okay, again, it has a very straightforward little reading of most of the eschatological passages of Scripture, especially Revelation. Okay? Now, this fourth view is dispensational pre-millennialism. Okay, again, there are a ton of similarities. There are a few key differences I'm gonna explain here in a moment. They, like historic pre-mill, also hold to a literal, straightforward reading of these eschatological passages. Where they differ, and you can see this on the timeline, is the timing of the rapture. They believe that Jesus will actually rapture his people before the seven-year tribulation period. Okay, sometimes people call this the pre-trib, pre-mill uh, position, which you can also uh, hold to that here within this dispensational pre-mill. So, th- this is what they expect to happen here. Near the end, uh, right before the rapture, many nations will rise up against the modern state of Israel, Okay, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Israel will respond to this, according to Daniel 9, by signing a treaty with a world leader known as the beast, the Antichrist from Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. The Antichrist will actually assist in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, this will launch the the seven years of tribulation, which are known as the 70th week that's predicted in Daniel by the prophet Daniel there. And that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But before the tribulation begins, God will actually rapture his people up to heaven. Now, during the tribulation period, God will designate Jewish believers. Some believe that there is an exact 144,000 Jewish believers, according to Revelation 7, to proclaim the gospel during these horrific times. Many will come to faith in Jesus. They will believe. But halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will break his treaty with Israel, will desecrate the very temple he helped to rebuild, according to Daniel, Ezekiel 38, 39, Psalm 83. And at this, God's wrath will be unleashed upon the earth like never before, Revelation 16. Armies of the earth will basically team up against God's people, and when all hope seems lost, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, will return, He will defeat his enemies by just the words of his mouth, according to Revelation 19. Jesus will then reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem while Satan is bound. And then at at the end of the millennium, Satan is uh, briefly set free. And then he is defeated along with every enemy of God. They will be thrown in the lake of fire forever, Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Again, there's a lot of overlap between those two positions. But let me unpack two key differences between historic and dispensational premillennialism. Now, one of these differences, and you see it right here on the timeline of the dispensational view, is really the relationship that God has uh, between Israel and, uh, and the church. Um, when looking at this, you see kind of a prominent view there of the role of Israel uh, as it relates to the end times, that as Israel becomes reestablished in the land, this is to heighten the expectancy of the imminence of God rapturing his people to occur. That's why there's such a focus on Israel. There's promises in the Old Testament of that occurring for a dispensational premillennialist. Now, why is that the case? Why is there such a focus on Israel? The reason for that is because dispensational premillennialists organize God's work throughout history into different dispensations or different time periods. And there's kind of disagreement here, but there are basically uh, seven main dispensations. And I won't go into each of the seven here this morning, but there are three that are important for our discussion this morning. One to Israel, one to the church, and one uh, basically during the millennial kingdom. And in each dispensation, God works in a particular way with a particular group of people during a particular time. So God's activities with Israel is different than with the church, according to the dispensationalists. And so uh, basically the way that he relates God during the end times, it's different with the church and with Israel. For a historic premill, they don't view God's dealings with humanity in that way. For, for them, they view that God's got one plan, he's got one people of God, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is one people of God. So all the work and, and promises that God has made in the Old Testament or to Israel is fulfilled either in Jesus or through the church. Now, historic female, they do believe that at some point there is somewhat of a spiritual awakening that's Uh, somewhat widespread uh, throughout the Jewish people. But certain promises, like uh, the promise of Israel getting their land back, that they view as as not a physical land, but basically of them coming to Jesus, that Jesus is uh, the greater, more perfect land, referring to the salvation that's found in him. Okay? You guys still with me this morning? All right, okay. Another key difference between historic and dispensational pre-mill is the timing of the rapture. Okay, you probably picked up on this as well. Historic premill understands the rapture occurring after the tribulation, occurring right before the second coming of Christ. Again, unlike the dispensational view, which believes that Christians will not experience the tribulation, they will be raptured up before uh, that occurs. Okay, now, I've been talking a lot about the rapture this morning. You're probably like, what is the rapture? What does that refer to? Well, the rapture, this phrase comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, And it means to be uh, caught up or to be snatched away. You see that concept um, in other passages that Jesus uh, refers to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, which we'll get to towards the end of the sermon series. And it refers to the time when believers, both dead and alive, will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. The bodies of the dead in Christ will be united with their souls and all believers in that particular moment will receive their glorified bodies. That's the rapture in a nutshell, all right? Now, I think this is also important. There are differences, according to a dispensational premillennialist, there are differences between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus, okay? Now, this is, again, it shows another strength, perhaps, of the dispensational view. I don't have time to unpack each of these views. You can take a picture of it, um, look at it later this week, um, but we are uh, on a crunch of time this morning. Um, but th- those are basically the two views that we have within premillennialism And I will unpack more next week, the ah ah-mill, post-mill, and even get into the strengths and weaknesses of all four views and try to lead us into a way of how do we best understand what happens in the end times. Okay, but what I want to do, just to do justice for the premillennial view, especially dispensational premillennial view, I, I want to provide what I consider to be six main strengths of this view. And there will be some overlap There'll be some that are directly applied to the dispensationalists, um, but largely this is for the pre-mill uh, view, okay? Uh, here are six strengths. Here's the first one. I think that this is a strength for the pre who employ a consistent literal interpretation of these key eschatological passages, okay? W- with a literal interpretation, it follows a clear chronological order in certain really important passages, like Revelation 19 and 20, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, I think with this, it provides a really clear uh, interpretation and exegesis of Revelation 20, the, the passage I read just a moment ago of the, of the millennium, where I think other views they, they have to do some, some sort of exegetical gymnastics, if you will, um, to, to basically understand, is, is this a figurative? Is this metaphorical? Is this a symbol? And I think that the pre-mill view makes sense of Jesus, for example, physically returning to the earth, Zechariah 14, or Jesus uh, setting up a throne in Jerusalem, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 2 makes sense of of other promises like Revelation 3 verse 10, where where God's promising not just the church of Philadelphia there, but the universal church that they won't experience the tribulation. God will rapture his church before that time period. Okay, so there are a lot of advantages of this literal straightforward interpretation where it makes things more clear. Now, I'll argue next week that things that are just more clear or easier doesn't automatically make it right. Okay, and we'll see why next week. It's a little teaser to come back. Okay, second view here for a pre-mill is that I think they provide an explanation to passages that refer to the intermediate states. I think another important question, and this doesn't get enough attention, I think, another important question I think separates these four views is whether this current age that we're living in right now will issue immediately into the final, eternal, golden age. Or if there's an age in between, maybe a a silver age, where uh, certain passages like Revelation 20, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65 and 66, Zechariah 14, even 1 Corinthians Fifteen verses 20 through 28, which we'll look at in a few weeks, seems to suggest that there's an age in between the age that we're living in right now as the church and then the golden age or the eternal age. Certain passages where you read it, it's like, that doesn't fit what we're experiencing right now, but that also doesn't fit the age in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that the pre-mill has an argument of why that is the case with Jesus physically reigning during the millennium, which the ah and even the post-mill uh, have a hard time explaining. Of course, they have a view on that, but I, I don't know if it's convincing or not. We'll look at it next week. All right, thirdly, um, and I'll just be brief with this because this is connected to, to uh, strength number one, the, the natural chronological reading of First Corinthians 4 and 5 I think presents the rapture of occurring before the second coming of Christ. And you can refer back to that chart just a moment ago uh, of the differences between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. There are a lot of, I think, convincing um, reasons why. Okay, number four. Still with me? All right. Number four. Um, The pre-mill view guarantees the fulfillment of God's promises made to ethnic Israel. So many promises in the Old Testament, such as this unconditional land in Genesis 13 that's promised to Abraham, this idea of a throne to David in 2 Samuel 7, Ezekiel 34, or this regenerate nation of Israel, Jeremiah chapter 33, and several other promises where these other views have to answer the question, okay, you got all these promises to Israel. If it's not really to Israel, who is it for and how and when will those promises be fulfilled? Again, they have an answer to that, but I think that this pre-mill view guarantees the fulfillment of these promises in a straightforward manner. And then fifth, um, the pre-millennialism view promises and explains this idea of a realized and universal peace on earth during Christ's millennial reign. And while we do have peace with God, we have the peace of God, it's very clear we don't have peace on the earth right now. Just watch the news for two seconds, okay? Now, this is different than the post-mill, odd where they think, you know, we're in the millennium right now, but it's not a fully realized or universal peace. But within the pre-mill position, this is promised and actualized as stated in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah and then uh, sixth, th- this is, um, I think the doctrine of uh, imminence, which the rapture could happen at any moment, I think supports the pre-mill view. You-, you see certain passages throughout the New Testament of this sense of urgency of at any moment in time the rapture could occur. And what's interesting, at uh, certain passages in the New Testament that speak to the doctrine of imminence, like Titus 2, verse 13, Paul admonishes us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the Savior, of him rapturing his people. He doesn't say, look for signs of the tribulation. Don't look for the tribulation. Don't look for the Antichrist. Don't look for the mark of the beast, etc., but look for his appearing, the, the rapture to occur. Okay? Now, (laughs) there are more strengths, okay, to the the pre-millennialist view. Of course, there are some weaknesses that we will address uh, next week as I evaluate all uh, four. But as we close this morning, and like I said last week, and I can't stress this enough, eschatology is not a topic that's given to us just to debate all morning long. Eschatology is given to us to impact how we live right now in the present. And what I want to do each sermon is to connect eschatology, what we know will happen in the future, with how we live right now today, so that this isn't just an academic exercise that we do week in and week out. And for this morning, what I want to do is to connect eschatology to the present by showing us that eschatology should be a primary source of your encouragement right now, today. In 1 Thessalonians, as as Katie read that passage this morning, 1 Thessalonians is known as Paul's eschatological letter. Every chapter at the end, (laughs) of all five chapters, Paul references the the coming or the appearing of Jesus at the end. What's interesting is, is that as he details what happens at the end in chapters four and five, he adds these words here. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He says in chapter five, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Look, Isn't that amazing? As you think about Paul providing this really detailed explanation of how things will unfold in the end. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words right now. Like this isn't just encouragement you'll experience in the future, but this is a type of encouragement right now in the present by using your knowledge of eschatology. And so the challenge is, is if you are ignoring eschatology because it's too confusing, or if you're just using eschatology as a source of debate to show how smart you are, you are missing the point of why God has given us these verses. These verses is not to, to help us you know, get lost in timelines and charts and debates, but one of the primary reasons we have all of these verses referring to the end times Is to encourage you by flooding your heart with hope. And so the question is, is what role does eschatology play as being a source of encouragement for you? When you think about your list, and we all have lists of things that encourage us, how high up is your eschatology? Like, we find encouragement with our friends, our family, certain activities, the reality that our our sins have been forgiven by Jesus. Uh, We get encouragement by thinking about the character of God. But what about our eschatology? Like, when you're discouraged and down, and do you use your knowledge of the end times to fill your heart with encouragement? And you might be wondering, well, how do I do that? Like, what does that even look like to be encouraged with the end times? I think one way, there are many ways, but let me give you one way this morning. Eschatology invites us to deepen our trust in God's sovereign plan. This is amazing to, to think about that God has everything planned out. He sees the end from the beginning, from the beginning to the end. He sees it all. And while we may not know with 100% certainty of how every little detail will play out, there's one thing that you can cling to, one thing that you can hang your hat on, one thing that you can know for sure is that God's purposes will not be thwarted. That God has a plan from the beginning to the end, the end from the beginning, and nothing can stop our God. There's no amount of evil No amount of suffering, there's no amount of chaos, no antichrist, no Satan being unhinged, nothing that you can go through in this life that can stop what God has planned from the beginning of time, which, by the way, will culminate in Jesus Christ sitting on the throne and using his enemies as a footstool because he is victorious. God is in control. And so church, I want to encourage you this morning with this reality that things are not spinning out of control. God is sitting comfortably and powerfully on the throne and he is guaranteeing that his plan and his purposes will unfold exactly how he wants it to unfold. Like it's impossible for God to get sweaty palms about things that happen on the earth. It's impossible for God to to panic or to feel flustered. But God is sitting on the throne and everything that happens, happens because of his sovereign plan. Let me encourage you even further with this. That is not only true for how things end, but that is true for every detail of your life. Think about it for a moment. If God has all of this planned out, like he knows exactly when Jesus will return, he knows exactly what the millennial kingdom looks like, he knows exactly what the mark of the beast is, who the Antichrist is, when the resurrection will occur, what the new heavens, all he's got all of it planned out. And with incredible detail, if he has all of those things planned out, don't you think he can handle managing your life? Don't you think the God of the universe is able to help carry your burdens and your struggles and your pain and your doubts and everything that you go through? If all of those things are part of God's unfolding plan, then we can safely conclude, church, that everything you go through, everything, the good and the bad, is part of God's unfolding plan for your life, and it is. Has purpose. JT English says this. He says, "If I could teach one thing about eschatology, and he's a pastor, he says, he says it would be this: the end times are not about God bringing disorder to our current order, but God bringing order to our current disorder. God is in control." And what I love about 1 Thessalonians is that Paul was trying to get back to Thessalonica. He's trying to get back there to encourage them, but he couldn't because of the amount of persecution and suffering that that church was going through. And if you read 1 Thessalonians and you wonder, well, then how does Paul encourage them? Does he encourage the church to pray for persecution to stop? Does he encourage them to have just faith over fear? to to just believe hard enough and, and their circumstances will change? No. What Paul does to encourage them is to draw their attention to God's sovereign plan for how everything ends. Paul never says that their suffering will end. In fact, when you read it, you almost get the sense that Paul is saying, this is your lot, that you will suffer For the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he encourages them in chapters 4 and 5 and says, But it will not always be this way. That the best is yet to come in the sense that Jesus will return and he will make all things new. Interpretation, all of this is worth it. Everything you go through in suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ will be worth it. And so, the question is, is what role does your eschatology play in encouraging your heart? What is the passage like in Revelation chapter 21 play as you go through suffering? Listen to this. Revelation 21 verse three, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look, does that make your heart sing this morning? Knowing the promises that are in there is that God will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more death, no more sinning, no more anything that we experience in this life as a result of the fall because Jesus is reigning forever and ever. Yeah, amen. To, yeah. Does that, like, the, the press here, the press here is, is this promise? enough for you? Is this enough for you? Not as a form of escapism, but as a source of true hope and encouragement that eclipses the pain that you go through right now to enable faithful living because the best is yet to come. That's the connection with our eschatology is that Jesus will make it all new and it's all worth it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you. Oh God, we could go on and on and on this morning talking about the implications of how the future impacts our present. God, we love thinking about these things. God, we love the fact that you are in control, that you have a plan, that the things that we go through in this life are not by random happenstance, or things that we experience are not Just random or by chance, God, we we trust in your sovereign plan. God, we believe that you, Jesus, are reigning and that everything that we experience is part of that unfolding of your plan for all of history. God, I pray that you would use these truths that we've talked about to encourage our hearts today. Lord, people in this room are experiencing real trial right now or some are mourning the death of loved ones some have uh, experienced the pain of watching their loved ones sick in the hospital or some who are here today and their marriages are a disaster children who are wayward and running away from you some who are experiencing the pain of infertility god the list goes on and on and on and Lord, I pray that you would use the promise that we have in Revelation 21 to rub hope deep within their heart that these things in this world will not always be the case, that you are returning, and you are returning soon, and we worship you with that reality. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.